0: Good morning, Redemption Church. Good to be with you today. And can I tell you, you know, I'm a transparent dude. i let you know things. And I've been having one of those seasons in life. You ever have one of those, air quote, seasons where... uh, Things feel a little heavy, a little challenged, whatever else. I know that's been true in my world as of late, and there's all sorts of different reasons for that, right? Some of it is just, it's my personality type. Some of it is there's always personal things that are going on in life that apply the pressure, and then I add to it the fact that I'm a pastor, and that has certain things, and then we're doing a project down on 203, and that has some things, and then bundle into all of that, that my superpower is pessimism. Yes, right? And I know what pessimism is in my world. It's a protective agent, right? It's this thing that I go, if I envision the absolute worst, then whatever happens, it probably won't be as bad as I thought, and I'm okay, right? So it's like the dumbest, most backward thing in the world, right? But, but in that space, I can sometimes have these little pity parties and be worried about stuff and absorbed into all of that. And then, in all seriousness, and then I watch the news, Right? And you see what's happening in Israel and Gaza And you see the pain and the suffering and the carnage Where children that aren't even asking to have this inflicted on them is just, they're, they're dying, they're suffering, they're starving There's all sorts of things going on in the midst of that In fact, there was this one particular bad day I was having And then Ellen peeks her head into my office and says A hospital just blew up And it suddenly resets you, you know And you realize that your first world problems are not that bad. In fact, if anything, I found myself throughout this week kind of going uh, like, I'm kind of ashamed uh, about some of the grief that I feel in my own heart, about my own challenges and problems, when I start to look at these grave, harsh, crushing things that are happening to other people. Now, I want to be clear. That isn't to say that our first world problems aren't problems. It's just to say that so often I find that even some of the biggest challenges for me in my daily life just pale in comparison. And the real problem then for me then sometimes is way more this idea that says, you know what, my ideal isn't the ideal always. And my perception of how things should be, it's not going that way, and therefore I'm going to be a little sour about it. And all of that is tremendously broken. It's broken. In fact, even this week when I was watching the news, I would get irritated every time it would snap to, let's talk about the Speaker of the House stuff. I'm like, shut up, man. Like, that's as important as like all of this, this warfare and hatred and just human carnage. What this made me think about is the fact that what we know as human beings is that life isn't easy or convenient or carefree. It's just not. And you see those markers in our world And all the more it kind of grounds you in that truth And it makes you think about the things that you are facing And maybe from that it makes you look at those things in a different light Because what I found for me as I was exploring these thoughts And going through the text that we're going to go through today um, I I, I realized um, that if you want to have a truly deep and fulfilling life uh, What you don't want it to be is easy actually right you don't want your first world problems to be the big thing or 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 you don't want to just remove all the little pressures in life if anything what you want is to embrace the pressures as they come what you want is the hardships to wash up on your shore because it's only in that space do our roots grow deep into the soil of god's truth god's love god's strength god's power and god's provision It's the weird anomaly that we need testing We need hardship, we need pain We need some levels of suffering in our own lives To press us and push us And certainly, at times, to even pulverize us To knead out all of our selfishness To knead out all of our kind of faulty expectation And from that, to have God weld into us Grit and selflessness and grace and dependence In other words, what I thought about this week in my own life Is that um, we don't grow when life is tepid We only grow really when life is tested And so instead of me complaining about the tests as they come I need to embrace those tests Because God wants to do something with those in me for his good To push beyond the limits So that we find a new limit So with that then, today's topic is all about that tests and faith and limits. It's the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, which is a very weird story as we'll get into here in a minute. But as we do, I want to remind you that we have an app, and in the app there are notes you can follow along with today, because uh, there's a handful of things that we're going to be just racing through as quick as we can, because there's a lot of density to the story and applications for us. But as we do, I also want to set us up with a moment of prayer here, and I'm going to pray for us, I'm going to pray for what's happening in Israel and Gaza as well, because again, we're all watching it, we all see it, and we see how many innocent people are always caught in the midst of these conflicts, no matter how it goes down. There's always so many innocent people that suffer in this, and so we want to pray right now, for us today, for them today as well, and then we're going to jump right into the story that God has for us. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, uh, I thank you that tests are not in vain in the life of the followers who are yours, that every test is an opportunity, every test is designed to strengthen us, especially if we face it, if we pass it, and we come out the other side from it. Man, you do amazing things with that. We also know that sometimes we fail tests, and I thank you for your grace that forgives our failures in this life. Jesus, we also think about the failures of just the human condition that happen all around the world, and we certainly are seeing it now in the Middle East. And we pray for peace in that region. We pray for your grace to be shown. We pray for you to do things that are beyond human capacity. We pray for the children, for the mothers who are watching their children suffer, for the fathers who feel powerless. We pray for the widows and the orphans, all that are there and all that are suffering. We ask for a very special measure of your mercy in this time. And Jesus, we look forward to a future where we will take our weapons and we will beat them into plowshares. Where no longer will we be about our warfare and our hatred and our animosity and our territorialism, but rather it will be about your kingdom and about the fruits of that which you intended for this world. And so teach us guide us show us help us to be your change in this world as we pray for the problems and hurt of this world We look to you, jesus. We need you and we love you in your good and perfect name. Amen so Abraham and isaac uh, This is such a weird story to be a favorite sunday school story It just is, because if you just took it in its most raw and honest form, uh, deity, the God of the Bible, comes to this man, Abraham, and says, I want you to take your child, tie them up with ropes, slit their throat, drain their blood, cut them into pieces, and burn them in a fire. That suddenly catches our attention. Like, that's in the book. That seems like that's a Sunday school story designed to traumatize our children. But see, we're doing this unfiltered. See, when we tell this story within our, our kids' ministry back here, we kind of reduce it down to something that doesn't seem just so uh, gratuitous, so R-rated, so slasher film-oriented. But that's the setting and the scene and the ask of the story. And for us in our modern sensibilities, it's very traumatizing to us even to, per- to like think about that. Even the way I described that, I'm sure some of you went like, I don't think you should say that on Sunday morning at church. But that is the scene. That is what is being asked of this man, Abraham, by this God, Yahweh, who he's recently come in contact with. That is kind of the setting. But to understand the story, to really get inside it, we need to start with the backstory so that we get out of our 21st century, wow, we feel very triggered by this thing, and we get back into their world to understand what this is all about. And from that, we'll figure out how this has some meaning for us today. So if you're taking notes with us this morning, we're gonna go right into the first point in your notes, which is the backstory. Right? You have to understand where it comes from to understand why it's landing where it lands. And so in the backstory, before Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, he had no sons. Right, And he was actually a pagan dude from a pagan region. In fact, in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, Joshua says to the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Naor, lived beyond the Euphrates River, and they worshipped other gods gods. So when you think about this dude, Abraham, who was originally Abram, his story starts out, most of his life, he worshipped other deities. He was not following the one true God of Israel. This wasn't really a thing to any of them at that point, really. Um, He's just doing his own thing, worshipping in his own way. But then one day, the God of Adam and the God of Noah kicks in his door. He's like, all right, young circumcised Chaldean, I'm going to go into your life and do something different. And so he storms into his life, kicks open the door, changes him in his grace so that he will be a blessing to all the other races of the world. This is God's plan for him. So out of nowhere, this dude's just chilling, living life, and God says, you, I want you to do a thing with. And so he grabs him, graces him, and uses him. In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the Lord said to Abram, leave your native country and your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. But in this, in the end, with this program, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And so if we remember our Sunday school stories up to this point, we remember that God said, all right, Adam, I'm gonna use you to bring flourishing to the world, and that was before the curse. But then Adam rebels and sins and brings curse into the world. So then there's Noah. And God comes to Noah and says, I want to reboot the plan that was started with Adam that was failed. But as I reboot the plan, you're going to have to understand that you're going to do this in light of the curse being in the world. And so Adam was supposed to bring blessing. It resulted in curse. Noah's supposed to bring blessing, but it's still kind of in the context of curse. But now God's coming to Abraham, and he's like i am going to undo this curse through you as a blessing to all the families on the planet which sounds awesome and it is but it's not all skittles and rainbows when you read the story it's not all easy peasy lemon squeezy as uh, abraham begins to live out this whole calling now initially he goes with big faith right like to 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 leave your family Where all your land and certainty is And to go someplace where you have no property And no certainty, that's a big deal And so he takes that step and at first we go Yay, Abraham, you're right, dude Way to go But then once he gets on the journey Things fall apart pretty quick for him When things get dicey He starts to tell some lies, and they're pretty brutal, right? So he has a run-in both with Pharaoh as kind of a regional leader, and then later Abimelech as a regional leader. And both times he tells those dudes, this woman that you think is really attractive, she's not my wife, she's just my sister. And what that is at its core, and this is going to sound gratuitous, but again, we can't teach these things in Sunday school, um, he just sex traffics his wife, basically. So he's like, yep, you... Because the longer it goes, the the more you wonder, did I hear God right? Is he really on the move? Is this going to be a thing? Whatever else. And so he takes things into his own hands and, and does this thing and ends up with this child, and it just creates a lot of extra headache and heartbreak within the context of things. But eventually, after these miscues and missteps and bad decisions, eventually, at his centennial birthday, things begin to come together And from that, he's given another child. And this child is Isaac, right? So now Abraham has two sons. One is a son that God will protect. Even though Abraham was taking things into his own hands, God's gonna protect that one. But the other son, Isaac, is this son of promise. And that's the one that God is gonna do this thing through. But he has these two boys. And so in light of all of this, things finally begin to settle down. Now, it's not always the best in the story. So one of the things that happens is uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, gets a little catty about the maid, and she was the architect behind the whole thing of like, yeah, sleep with the maid, have a kid, right? But once she has a kid, then she's like, I hate the maid, get rid of her, and get rid of him too. She gives them the foot of fellowship, right? Out the door. And they are sent away. And then after that, Abraham's like, well, we still got this tension with Abimelech because they did that whole thing where I said you were my sister, and you weren't, and that was bad, and I shouldn't have done it. But now we're going to do a treaty together. And so he gets a treaty with Abimelech, which is great, right? And then on top of this, he builds an altar to God, says, okay, I'm going to recalibrate my worship. I'm going to celebrate all that God has done. And at the end of Genesis chapter 21, it says, then he settled in for a long time right? Because chapter 22 is the story, but this leads us into that. And so what we see in the collective is that by the end of this whole thing, mistakes are gone, pressures are off, praise is given, and retirement has begun. He's a hundred plus something, and life is smoothly sailing forward. But here's the other thing I've realized about all of this stuff. It's usually when life is most comfortable, when you feel most at ease, like, I can breathe, I can stretch that God goes all laffy-taffy on you, man. And he decides he's gonna put you in the paddle and he's gonna stretch you inside and out. Because comfort is not always best for our soul. We love it, we want it. But God's like, ah, that's not where I can really grow you in it. Because again, as I was saying at the beginning, there are certain truths about our character, about our virtue and about our faith that the only way forward with it is it must be forged. It can't be fluffed. Right, nobody is fluffed into deeper faith. I know we think we are. Right? Sometimes we go to like a concert or a megachurch, and there's all this like hype, upbeat coolness. You're like, yeah, my faith is on fire, until like three days later when something bad happens, and you're like, oh, I don't know what to do. But it's in that I don't know what to do space where then faith is really forged because faith can't be fluffed. That takes us into Genesis 22 and the story, which is the second point in your notes. The backstory is Abraham is a pagan, and God brings him into a purpose. And from that, he sometimes does good and sometimes does bad, but finally gets to equilibrium. And it's right in that space, after these things, all that stuff we just went through, it says that God tested Abraham. Here's the thing. Think about it. He is somewhere between 112 and 120, right? So let me help you in your world a little bit here. You know when President Biden gets on TV? No, I, I, I love my president. I pray for my presidents. Every one of my presidents I pray for love my presidents, right? doesn't matter. But when he gets on TV and you're like, I'm so nervous for him. And you feel that in your chest? Like, he's going to talk. And if he's going to talk and he's going to walk, I'm really nervous for him. Right? You feel it. Everybody feels it. Whether you voted for him or against him, you all feel it, right? Joe Biden is 40 years younger than Abraham in this story, right? Like I'm looking at the story of Abraham, I'm like, this dude doesn't need a test. He needs in-home healthcare and a case of insurer. Like, dude don't need a test, right? God's gonna test him in the ripe age of 120-ish or so. That's harsh, man. But what I also find is that true faith to be tested Sometimes needs to happen when you're at your weakest more than when you're at your strongest Or we learn lessons the best when we are probably feeling a little feeble more than we're feeling fierce Because I think in there what a test does as I've thought about in my own life at least Is it forces the real you to the surface? And here's something painful It forces the real you to the surface both for bad or for good like you might think you're pretty solid And then it forces you to the surface And you realize you have a lot more fears A lot more frustrations A lot more timidity Whatever else And so it brings your kind of suspicious self to the surface Other times you're like Man, no, there's grit in there There's fortitude There's strength Tests will always bring our real us to the top For good or for bad And so if we succeed There's going to be strength If we fail in this There'll be humility And both are good right that's the other lesson i think i've learned over the course of time is whether i succeed or fail in a trial there's still good that can come out the other side now in the context of this maybe another question to ask is what is the difference between a test and a temptation right because you know satan seems to tempt but god will test what's the difference i think the only real difference is probably intention or motivation In other words, whether it's a test or attempt, the method is similar. It's pushing a pressure point in our lives. And the potential in that pressure is equal, right? We're either going to pass or we're going to fail. So it's all in there. But the difference or the purpose of God, of God's doing it, is he puts this test in our life so that we will succeed. Where the enemy may put a test in our life as a temptation so we succumb, the difference is just motivation. So God isn't doing this in the life of Abraham, so Abraham fails. He's doing this in the life of Abraham for something else, but the intent behind it is that there would be success, that there would be a leveling up. Now, here's the thing I want to say for all of us. There are times that you and I face tests, and we don't pass. We give in, we crumble, we worry, we fret, we fear, whatever it is, and we don't pass. Thank God for grace, right? Because even in that, it still can teach the lesson. It can still level us up. So I don't want us to think like, oh man, I don't pass my test. I'm a terrible Christian, whatever else. No, it's just realizing that tests are designed to grow us no matter what. But when we lean into them and we pass the test, man, you level up in a whole new way, right? And here's the thing I think at the core of a test. I'm gonna see if I can define what a test is really doing. Um, it's verifying that your beliefs Are so true That you act on those beliefs With your behaviors I'm going to say that again A test, what it's designed to do is verify That your beliefs Are so held dear That you back those beliefs up With your behaviors You lean into it and you do that thing God wants you to do in the midst Of the challenge And I think especially When things are hard When we be tempted to not lean in With our right behavior But we do it anyway That shows that we really do believe What we believe That's other level And that's what God's gonna do to Abraham here So God decides to test him So God says, Abraham And he replied, yes, I am here He says, take your son, your only son Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much And go to the land of Moriah Which is Zion Or actually where Jerusalem is today That's the region Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will show you. Now we know that when God takes any child out of due season, it's incredibly painful. I know some of you in this room have gone through that, whether it be a child or a grandchild or whatever, and you know the heartbreak and pain of this. But here, what God asks of Abe here is just so hard. Because again, Abe... Abraham knows the background. He knows this whole system. He understands when a God wants a human sacrifice. And so in his mind, he already knows exactly what that's going to require of him. It's not enough to say, I'm just going to put a blindfold on my kid and send them into the desert and that's it. No, he's going to have to be hands-on in a process that is incredibly barbaric. So barbaric that we can't even fathom it as modern human beings. Like, you see some of the things happening right now in Israel and Gaza with children, and you're like, that's so hideous it looks like what this story's talking about in some ways has that kind of atrocity attached to it but see that was again the world that Abraham knew he comes out of a place where they had this this way of doing business with the gods right and and, and so basically the pagan religious systems had this idea that says you know what the gods are giving you fertility They give you crops, they open the womb, and all they ask in return is on occasion to give a a newborn offspring back to the gods by way of a sacrifice. This is the way the, the, the good of the many is outweighed by kind of the suffering of the one. So if this one suffers, well, it's gonna bring fertility to all. And so when Abraham hears his God say this, it's not shocking to him. It may be shocking that God's never brought this up yet, it's certainly shocking in light of the fact that this is his only remaining heir, and we'll get into that in a minute, but but he might be looking at this thing going, well, but God said he's going to promise to make this lineage of my name, but now he's wanting the sacrifice, but the gods do ask for this, and so perhaps that's what this God is asking for as well. In that sense, it's not super shocking. Not for him. For us, it is. For him, it's not. But there's also something in the story here That gets lost a little bit in English translation The tone gets a little forsaken As we translate this little section And that is the fact that what God does here Is he doesn't issue a command He doesn't say, Abraham, take your son and sacrifice him Actually in Hebrew, it's a request Abraham, are you willing Would you take your son Isaac and sacrifice him? which to me makes it an even harder test because there's an escape clause in the story, right? Like if you're given an option, God's like, hey, Matt, are you willing to do this thing? If it's something that's super sacrificial for me, I might be like, you asked a favor and I'm gonna say no because that's just too far, right? So God is kind of asking something of Abraham, but he's not commanding something of Abraham. So Abraham's gonna have to work through that. The other thing about this, though, I think is interesting, is the fact that uh, Isaac isn't his only son. There is Ishmael, right? That's actually technically his firstborn. So he's got two kids. But in reality, what's he done? He severed that relationship, right? Because his wife was catty, because there was things, because he was impetuous. He sends off his first son. That relationship is no more. The bridge is burned. All he's left with is this other son, and now he has to think about this other son being sacrificed. That's pretty heavy. That's what's going on in part, right? The other thing to think about in this is if he goes through with this and his son is actually sacrificed and slaughtered for his God, story's over. He's 120-ish now. There's probably no other kid in his future. So this homicide will also be kind of a social suicide. He'll have no future at his disposal. But then add to it the fact that this is the son whom he deeply loves— Thus, the sacrifice will be compounded, right? And so he's going to have this war inside. Well, God's asking me, but I love my son. God's asking me, but this is in my legacy. God's asking me. He's made promises, but how does the promise get fulfilled? And this kind of thing. It's just all sorts of strife. So, what does Abraham do? He leans into his beliefs with a behavior. Says the next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took the two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place that God had told him about. You probably don't see it there, but there's a certain level of, um, like, wonky order. Like, he's just kind of dazed and confused. Like, you should chop the wood, then saddle the donkey, then get your son, then get your servants and go. But he's like kind of doing stuff and saddling and getting, and, oh, I forgot the wood. And I mean, I can appreciate that just in the humanness as a father. But then they set out, and day one is probably very hushed, and day two is probably very heavy. But then on the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little further We will worship there, and then we will come right back. Now, some people read this as a confidence in Abraham that he's like, God's going to spare him somehow. Or God will raise him from the dead, which even the book of Hebrews talks about this hope that he may have had. But there's another part of this. He might have just tried to, you know, kind of like not get suspicions too high. Like, Like, oh, why are you taking your kid and no animal with you? Right? They might wonder a little bit. But they set out. And it says in this Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders While he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them walked together So apparently Isaac is old enough to haul wood And I can't help but think like hey man You're you're like hauling your own kindling to a burning at the stake for yourself Like that's a weird deal but then his father has to carry the fire and the knife, the two means by which he will kill, drain, dismember, and burn his son. And then both are walking together. Normally a father leads a son into a prosperous future, but here this father is leading his son into a potential doom. And as they walk, a sound pierces the air. Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, we have the fire and the wood but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? So, not only is he old enough to carry the wood, he's old enough to ask a pretty insightful question. And his father replies, he says, Well, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. And then they both continued to walk together. See, it's interesting in the answer because there may be a little bit of a veiled thing, as some commentators brought out, which in one sense he might be just saying, God will provide my son. But in another sense, he may be saying, God will provide. My son, you will be the sheep of sacrifice. Either way, they continued both in union and isolation, right? It's like, how do you really talk about this? How do you process this when you're kind of keeping some of this from your son anyway? So he just has to bear this burden in his own heart. So finally, it says, when they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood. And the other occurrences in the book of Genesis when an altar is built, it's built after God's promise has been fulfilled. Here is the first occurrence where an altar is built before the promise has been fulfilled. Which is wild even to think that not only has the promise not been fulfilled, this event is threatening the very essence of the promise. Next, he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now I can't help but think again, our man Abraham is geriatric and his son is strong enough to carry wood. He's old enough to have a conversation. He could clean his old man's clock right here. As soon as his dad's like, all right, uh, let's put some ropes on you. I'd be like, okay, fella. I see what's going on here. I played along till I found out dad's crazy, right? Like, I can see that. But, but actually, I think it reveals something about Isaac that he is trusting his father. As his father is trusting his God, So he's going along with this somehow In his own type of faith And with drama The next couple words Says and Abraham And Abraham It's like this What is gonna happen next And see when I see that And Abraham It's this profound moment of the test It's the test it's, it's the thing we all actually face Which is, alright, you got beliefs, bro You say you trust God Now we're going to see if your behavior Matches your belief Or if your belief is just sentimental If it's just kind of platitude If it's pie-in-the-sky idealism Or are you going to apply what it is you say you believe? Now as Abraham is doing something We're going to pause the story We're going to leave the sandals of Abraham for a minute. We're going to get into your sketchers for a minute, all right? Our shoes in this world, because here's what this comes down to. It is the test of faith. It's ultimately the test of all faith, right? We all face different tests, and tests are designed to strengthen our faith. And that's why, again, earlier I was talking about testing and pressure and everything else, because, again, we have to be willing to embrace these as healthy variables in our life, because in the context of Christian faith, a test is an accelerated learning program. All right? It, it just is. In fact, going into James chapter 1, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. I don't want to do that. That's a dumb idea right from the beginning. But I get his point. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. Don't fight it. Embrace it, right? For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now, often when we read this, we see this as more trials or hardships that just sort of come into our life. But as I'm trying to advocate, I actually think one of the greatest trials and tests that we face is when we know what this tells us to do. And we need to do what it tells us to do in any given event. And in that moment, when we're trying to decide, do I do what God wants me to do or do I do my own thing? That's the ultimate test. In other words, obeying God's commands is a test and this is why you know as you get to know me more and more it's why it makes such a big deal about the sermon on the Mount, and the sermon on the Plain, and paul's definition of love in first corinthians 13 because i find that the real test of faith when it comes to obedience is obeying the hard to do stuff that's the real test like there's easy stuff man like okay uh matt don't cheat on your wife that's easy go to church read your bible pray easy Right, uh, Matt, tell the truth Trust me, I do that to a fault That gets me in trouble often That's not hard right? There's a bunch of stuff in the Bible where I go That's not obedience, I just agree with it That doesn't even take work But when I get into the Sermon on the Mount, for example Oh, that stuff becomes hard Suddenly it's like, oh, when you have a relational breakdown You've got to go and repair it If somebody's wronged you, but they ask for forgiveness You've got to forgive them Oh, and why I like to judge other people and check out the specks in their eye. Instead, I got to have self-judgment and worry about the plank sticking out of my own face as a hypocrite. Or if I have an enemy that doesn't want me to succeed, doesn't want my good in life, wants me to be cursed in some way, I have to bless them, do good to them, pray for them. Somebody strikes me, I'm not supposed to strike back and somebody sues me, I pay them double what they sue me for. That's, that's ridiculous, man. Or even Jesus saying, why are you worrying about your 401k? Why are you worrying about the economy? Why are you worrying about your money? Why are you worrying about your paycheck? You should worry about the kingdom and its righteousness. Money should not be your worry. Money is a God if that's your worry. You should focus on your God and not your money. Like all these things that he says are about love or about persecution. When you're persecuted, leap for joy, right? Like be happy about that. Like all of it just seems so crazy, But see, what I love about that kind of stuff is that, again, it reminds me that defending the truthfulness of this book is an easy thing to do. To live its truthfulness in hard seasons, that's a challenge. That's a test. And see, that's the test that we want to be thinking about. It's trust in uncomfortable actions. Because here's the thing, if you're taking notes. Faith is to be proven, not simply professed. Faith is to be proven, not simply professed, which I think is good for us to realize. In fact, in the second chapter of James, it was part of our reading this morning. He says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say that you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and then you say, Hey, goodbye, have a great day, stay warm, be well fed, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What does that do? Like, like, James is just confronting this reality that he says, you know what, um, you know, you, you think you're fine because you have right doctrines that you believe? He's like, big deal, the demons believe that stuff too. They actually tremble about it. He says, but the real test of faith is right deeds behaved, not simply right doctrines believed. And so again, this faith is to be proven, not simply professed. To show that it has substance and it's not just simply sentimentalism. And where does James then ground his idea of this? Whose story? He says, don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham (laughs) has shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see... We are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Now I know Luther is rolling in his grave right now. Ah! Now we're Protestants. And I go, yes, we're Protestants. And sometimes in our Western systematizing models, we take faith and we kind of divide it into two pieces, and we say, well, there's this objective belief side, and there's this subjective behavior side, and then we want to kind of break down all of that stuff, and we forget that the Bible is an Eastern book, not a Western book, and it's much more an organic book than it is a systematic book, and it wants to put a pressure in our life that says, you know what faith is? It's you so much believe you behave. And it's just a package. You're so compelled by this thing that you believe is true, you go it's both doctrine and deeds coupled together and that's what James is pushing for us and he uses Abraham as the example he acted because of what he affirmed and because he so affirmed it he acted in fact what he says in James 2:21 is that Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered Isaac on the altar so we left off Isaac is bound he's on the wood Abraham has the fire and the knife. Abraham begins to act, and according to James, he offered his son. He takes the step of the ultimate sacrifice in his heart. But just as he's moving, just as he's going, just as he's resolved, there's no test. It's now a fact. He's crossed the threshold right up to the marker. We go back into the story. Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. He says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham, I'm sure, is like, yes. Here I am, he says. He says, don't lay a hand on the boy and do not hurt him in any way. So Abraham goes right up to the millisecond and he doesn't flinch. And then God stops him and I can't help but read that part of the story and go, how many times does God get us right up to the brink, but we flinch? Or maybe we go, oh, the ask is too big. I don't have to worry about the flinch. I'll just never take the step to begin with. We'll never pack up the donkey and go tratting out for three days, right? That's always gonna be the great question that we have to wrestle with because it is very easy to co-opt faith with fear, with doubt, with worry, control, reaction, tangible solution, Fight or flight, you name it We often could subvert Our steps of growth When it comes to faith But here Man, Abraham is given A really challenging test And really leans in his behavior With his belief Has action connected To his affirmation Now what's interesting about this story Aside from that is there's another layer And this layer is going to be a little bit more uncomfortable For us in some ways, right? Because um, it doesn't fit our nice, tidy theology again Which I think is kind of okay Because in the book of Genesis, we've already had this Right? We've already been given descriptions of God within Genesis Where like, he inquires of where people are hiding Or we see that he regrets the creation of humanity Or he's sorry about where the project has led And we're going to see another uncomfortable thing As far as this story here Maybe to lead it, I'll ask the question Um who is this test for? In the story, who is this test for? You might go, well, the test was for Abraham to prove his faith. Or maybe you'd say the test was for Isaac to prove the faith of his father. But what does the story actually say? The angel says, don't lay a hand on the boy and do not harm him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me your son, your only son That's tricky, right? It seems that this test was for God. I didn't write it. certainly not the way I would have written it. I would said, "See now, Abraham, you know your faith. Uh, but in the nature of the story, there's this pressure applied where it's like, all right, uh, Abraham was supposed to believe God that God was going to do a promise. And he has to follow all the way through. And God takes him all the way through this whole test so that in the end, God can say, dude, now I know you're loyal, you're committed, you love me, you fear me. No matter what happens next, you are with me. Now I know this. Now, theologians will take this and try to explain, well, there's a difference between the fact that God is all-knowing, but then there's this relational knowing and it's different than informational knowing. And I can affirm all of that. But here's part of my challenge with that and why I kind of push back on solving the, the, the pressure. It's because I think it takes away from the story. I think part of what we're to walk away with in this story is to go, you know what? We too should have this sense of, I want to prove to God I'm loyal. I want God to be able to say of Matt Boswell's life, now I know, Matt. When you're facing this challenge and you feel doubt, but you lean in faith anyway, when you have beliefs, but you reinforce those with behavior, now I know you really do believe this. Like, I think that's a healthy thing. I think that's partly how god wants us to understand this and this is no different than when i think about my wife ellen right like every day i tell her i love her every day like probably multiple times a day you ask her she'll tell you i say that but you don't want to know when it really kind of sings in her and she really knows it it's when i prove it it's easy to say i love you but when i prove it in acts that may even be hard for me to do or uncomfortable for me, but I want her to know I really, really love her. That's when she goes, now I know you really love me. Sweat equity is really superior to lip service, right? And that's what's happening in this story here. Thus, as Abraham has provided a proof of his faith, so God will now provide Abraham with the proof of his promise. And so God stops Abraham, and then Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket, So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And then Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And so the lesson here in part is, hey man, God fulfills his promises. And this is why, all the more, we want to make sure that as we think about his promises, they're not just belief, but we reinforce our belief with our behaviors. We so trust God's promise, we live in accordance with what it is he calls us to do to fulfill that promise in the world. The other thing about this story, though, and I think about the first listeners, Israelites coming out of Egypt, having all this other doctrine that's corrupted, and of those ideas, the idea that you must sacrifice your children to have a fruitful future— And now God says, you know what? Remember that Abraham story and you thought it was going the way of all the other gods and at the last second I stopped it, here's why. I don't want human sacrifice as a means of protecting your future. I want you to trust me in faithfulness as I lead you into a fruitful future. From this, God then reinforces his promise. The angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven and he says, this is what the Lord says, because you've obeyed me and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will swear by my name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. You believed me, and you behaved in accordance with that, and now I will bless you. Now, on the surface of this, this looks like it's just a promise for the Israelites, But then, like a thousand plus years after Moses writes the story, Paul writes this. He says in Galatians chapter three, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed his good news to Abraham long before when he said all the nations will be blessed through you. So he says all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing of Abraham that he received because of his faith. See, weirdly enough, that story that was originally to Abraham becomes the story of the gospel, right? And and that's what Paul's talking about. He's like, that moment, that decision changed everything. It put the trajectory of the world in a whole new light because God was going to do this rescuing effect. And it just highlights again that what the key to that was, was a faith that didn't simply say, I believe, but it was a faith that says, I behave in light of what I believe. It reminds us that God is faithful and we are to be faithful to God as he is faithful to us and that is how we're rescued. But the other thing about the story that comes out is the fact that, you know what? There was another one and only son who came and did what that son was not meant to do. Isaac was not meant to save us. Abraham was meant to believe God with his son for something that was gonna come in the future. And that is the other one. In the book of Romans chapter eight, Paul talks about suffering in this life and God's gonna reward us for suffering And then he concludes with this. He says, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? See, whereas Isaac was spared, Jesus was sacrificed. And where God provided a substitute for Abraham, God was the substitute in Christ and where isaac went up the hill hill with with abraham and came back down jesus simply went up the hill and the he he died a criminal's death he died a sinner's death to forgive you to give his life to you and for you to expunge your sin and death and to export his life and righteousness into your life and so if you are a follower of jesus today here's the thing i'm going to encourage you to do go and boldly prove your professed faith Jesus has done a work in you, so go and do great work for him. Not because you earn salvation, not because you're having to impress God, but rather you say, God, I love you so much, I want to prove my love and loyalty to you, so I do these things. Now maybe if you're in the room today and you're not a Christian and you're watching online and you're not a follower of Jesus, today it's a little bit different, which is you have an opportunity to become a follower. To say, Jesus, I want to follow you because of what you've done for me, you gave your life for me and to me so that I might have life through you. Right now, we're just going to go ahead and pray. I want to encourage you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And for those who may be thinking like, yeah, I, I want to start that relationship with Jesus, that's a prayer away for you. You say, Jesus, I've sinned. I've fallen short of every standard you have, but I know you have grace for me. I know you died for me. I know you came to life again to give me life with you, and I want that. I confess my sin. I bow my knee to you, and I follow you. You may get your prayer in your way. He hears you. And then for the rest of us, man, we have been given so much. And in that, we have what we need even for the test of life so that our faith can level up. And so Jesus, I pray that we will weather well, that we will test well, that we will stand well, that we will trust well, that we will look to you well, and we will trust in all that you have come our way that it is for our good. We thank you for your grace and your provision and your good name, amen.